Outrage is spreading across the country in the wake of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. The complete failure and cowardice on the part of the police allowed the killer to carry out the massacre. And the gun manufacturers, who profit while mass shootings devastate the country, are given special legal protections. How are the arms industry capitalists shielded from accountability? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. Professor Wolf, so an unbelievable tragedy at Robb Elementary School. I mean, so many young children gunned down. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable, breathtaking the violence. At the same time, I mean, at the same time as the massacre was unfolding and the aftermath of the massacre was unfolding, the NRA, the National Rifle Association, was having their convention in in the very same state in Texas. Uh, I mean, the NRA postures as this, you know, movement, grassroots movement, standing up for constitutional rights. But I mean, that's not true, right? I mean, the NRA is a corporate lobbying group. Talk a little bit about them and what they've been able to accomplish for these arms industry capitalists? Well, the easiest way, and that captures part of it, is to make clear how the NRA functions. It is, in effect, a public relations firm for the gun producers. It is out there doing everything it can to make it as easy as possible for people to buy and own guns, which is what they manufacture. And so the more people who buy and own the guns, the more profits they earn. Most companies have to pay their advertiser to do things like that, more or less. But the uh, gun manufacturers discovered a brilliant way to get better advertising than almost anybody else can get and pay less for it than anyone else can get. And the way they did that was to kind of partner with the NRA, unofficially in many ways, officially in some, so that the link would be there and the collaboration and cooperation uh, likewise followed. And it's been a very profitable uh, many decades for the gun producers and a very profitable 
um, fundraising mechanism for the NRA, uh, some of which got it into deep trouble over the last couple of years when they were subject to all kinds of legal um, pressures from the government because they had been playing fast and loose with the enormous amounts of money they have. One thing that should be clarified, the NRA is able to raise money and to go about basically advertising guns and gun ownership and all the rest without paying taxes on the money it gets from the people that want to help them promote guns. They are a 501c4 organization under the Internal Revenue Service, and that's a particular form of tax exemption where you have to say that the profit-making benefits of what you do are incidental, that you're mainly about education and public service and the fact that there's some benefit along the way. for the, That's a side factor. Now, anyone who knows much about how this works will understand that the very creation of a 501c4 allowing you to basically do advocacy for particular political goals ought to have been looked at much more closely in the case of the NRA to determine whether it's only incidental that it's profitable for the gun industry. But because of the political power of the NRA, that has not been done. And so the the catastrophe continues. Here are a couple of background issues, though, that I think are very important for people to have in mind. The United States is an outlier. We have more guns per person than any other country. No other country is even close to what we have. This is a country characterized by an inordinate amount of gun ownership and buying and selling. Other countries that are rich like us don't have it. Other countries where people are engaged in hunting and target shooting don't have anything like this. Canada, for example, which has a much greater wilderness and a much greater probability of a citizen being interested in hunting and so on than the United States. They have one quarter of the number of guns per person that the United States does. Have nothing like the number of killings or suicides by gun. And to just drive home the point, over the last two or three days, the leader in Canada, Justin Trudeau, has introduced legislation that would ban outright all buying, all selling of guns. In effect, what he's trying to do there is freeze the low level of gun ownership at what it is now so that they don't have the kinds of experiences in the future that they see south of the border here in the United States. So any notion that there's nothing you can do is not true. Any notion that other countries behave like the United States, that's untrue. The problem is much worse here, and the activity to deal with it much less here than in almost, well, in virtually every other country around the world. But let me now, as a concluding point in this opening of the conversation, tell you what I think is the most important reality that goes deeper and further 
than anything having to do either with the gun industry or with the NRA. Over the last 50 years, roughly from the 1970s to the present, we have really done a number as an economic society, a capitalist society. We have done a real number on our working class, the majority of the people. If you had taken a look at the end of World War II, for example, roughly 75 years ago, if you had, you would have seen that the United States was a less unequal country than most of the European countries, Germany, France, Italy, Britain, and so on. We were less unequal. The gap between rich and poor was narrower here. There was the so-called American dream that was supposed to be within the grasp of most Americans. If you look at the situation now, it is reversed. We are much more unequal than the countries of Europe. We have not only caught up to them, we have become number one in inequality. It is really a stunning reversal of the sort you don't see that often in that short an amount of historical time. And this has really taken away from Americans the access to that so-called American dream. You can't have the man go out to work, bring home enough money to sustain a stay-at-home wife and children. Not that that was the greatest arrangement, but it was what was the reality for most of at least white America through the last century or so. All of that is gone. All the women have to go to work, whether they want to or not, often taking jobs that are secondary, poorly paid, poorly serviced, and all the rest. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. The good jobs have been taken away. People don't want to face that, but the reality of capitalism is this. And if you think about it, you kind of already knew it. The more successful workers are, in raising their wages and thereby helping their families get close to the American dream, the more the incentive for their employer to fire them. And that's what's been going on for 40 years. The biggest reality is to replace workers with machines. And the second biggest reality is to relocate the job out of the United States where you have to pay higher wages because workers struggle to get them, and you can move instead now to China or India or Brazil and pay a small fraction of wages for the same work that's being done. The end result is that workers have been losing out. And the last three or four years, it's really epic the pandemic, which we as a nation could not manage without a million people dying, the crash of 2020-2021, second only to the Great Depression of the 1930s, and now an inflation as if these catastrophes I've mentioned weren't enough. It's too much. It has savaged the working class. And now here comes the point. If you're losing your job, your income, your future, your hopes, your dreams, your hopes and dreams for your children. You are in a bad place in your mind, in feeling about yourself. And now comes along a very well-organized campaign. 
that says your right to feel threatened, your right to feel abused, you have been, but there's a way for you to recapture your standing, to protect yourself and your family. And it becomes a kind of symbolic act. Go out and buy a gun and fight like the devil against any politician who decides or threatens your ability to get a gun. Look at how much of the argument put out by the NRA is about security that you get from guns. You're holding on to the Second Amendment right to bear arms. All of this elaborate theatric is about substituting gun ownership as something you can fight for, hold on to, and that can be thought of as quote-unquote protective, is precisely a little bit of symbolic antidote to what's actually happening to you in terms of your job, your income, and the future your children can expect. If we don't do something about this basic assault on the working class of this country, then we are going to be looking at one after another of symbolic substitutes, because the guns are only one of it. Another one is the exaltation of military combat. Another one is the notion of white supremacy, that we are going to recapture some fantastic old America in which the best paid workers, which in this country were male, white, Christian, and so on, somehow we're going to undo the decline of those people by being big on guns or the flag or the military or the white supremacy. And I could go on. That has to be dealt with because if the people who are being savaged are not given some real assistance, well, then they will go and find ways to soothe themselves and accumulating guns is going to do it. That's why perfectly reasonable people, which many gun owners are, are immune to a simple argument. And that is, we have been building up our gun supplies for the last at least 75 years, if not longer, always promising it will bring greater security. And we have more suicides and homicides from guns than any other country total percentage, whatever you want to deal with, it obviously doesn't produce security. The argument, empirically solid, carries no weight because it's outweighed by the emotional need for something that at least gives you the illusion of security when the whole world around you is being taken away from what you were taught would be yours as a hardworking American. Thanks, Professor Wolf. I mean, I think it's so important to dig into these deeper social factors. I mean, the United States is the only country in the world where these types of mass shootings, these horrific massacres, have become essentially completely normalized. And so and so you have to look at, at violence in its totality. 
I'm glad that you you mentioned militarism. I mean, I think this is so important. I mean, the, the United States likes to talk about the U.S. ruling class, that is, likes to talk about how how exceptional they are, how exceptional the United States is, that it's an exceptionally free and democratic and just country. But but that's not true. I mean, one area where it actually is exceptional is that it's exceptionally violent. I mean, the U.S. war machine, as we've talked about on the show many times, is enormous. It dwarfs all other militaries in the world. And it's glamorized. I mean, it's sort of like the ultimate taboo in society to say anything negative whatsoever about the military or, or even about war. And that propaganda is especially targeted towards young men and boys, right? I mean, I believe pretty much exclusively these types of mass shootings are carried out by young men. Right. And when you're a boy, I mean, you're taught like the best thing you could possibly do when you grow up is be a soldier and go kill people in a war. The police, too, are exceptionally violent. I mean, the United States is really the only or one of the very few countries in the world where cops kill people at the rate that they do. Uh, again, something that's completely normalized and, in fact, glorified in popular culture. I mean, Hollywood cashes in on this culture of violence. The TV industry cashes in on the culture of violence, music. I mean, it really pervades the whole capitalist system in the United States, doesn't it? Yeah, but you know, again, I don't want to, you know, keep mentioning the same thing, but I'm struck, for example, following the logic of what you say, that we in the United States, with all our limitations, we have a long history of recognizing when a privately profitable business becomes socially destructive. And what we have done, and it's far from an adequate solution, but what we have done is elaborately erected government institutions who are assigned the task of reducing or at least trying to reduce the social destructiveness of those private enterprises whose profit-seeking activities cause the damage to our society. Let me give you just a few examples. Utilities you know, the people who produce electricity and gas and water in this country were often monopolies. It didn't pay two companies to run parallel electric lines around. So one company ended up doing it. And that one company was a monopoly, the only one delivering electricity, for example. And so they jacked up the rates. They jacked up the rates and ripped everybody off. The railroads did the same thing because there wasn't two tracks competing against one another. There was one track. And if you needed to ship something on that track, they had you. You could not avoid paying them. And they and you know what we did? Every one of the 50 states has a utility commission whose job it is to control the utilities. You can't raise the rates of a utility unless you get the permission of this government entity who's supposed to look out for the interests of the consumer. Why? Because the private enterprise violated those interests. Every state has an insurance commission doing the same thing with our insurance premiums. We require fishermen to get a license. We require hunters to get a license. We supervise what they do. We don't allow garbage disposal companies to dump just anywhere. They are supervised and they are prosecuted when they do damage to the woods where they dump illegally. 
we have a the Food and Drug Administration because we have an endless history of food companies, failures to clean up, failures to prevent organisms from getting into our food. We continue to have it. So we have the FDA to control that. We have the Environmental Protection Agency. So it would be nothing new to say, here's a highly profitable gun industry that is having some very undesirable, socially destructive effects, and there ought to be a real control. Now, I'm very aware that every time a capitalist society does this, the next step is for the industries that were supposed to be controlled and regulated to turn around and capture the agency. It's called regulatory capture because it's so familiar a part of our country. But at least for a while, and at least even after it's captured, the public can go after public entities that are not doing their job. We don't even have that here. And we have such an obvious example of using the precedent to talk about the obvious damage that this kind of gun ownership has and that ought to be supervised. It's really a sign that the NRA and the gun people have gone beyond what other industries do. The utilities capture the utility commission, but what the NRA and the gun people have been able to do is they don't have to capture the commission. They've been able to prevent even the establishment of a commission. Yeah, Professor Wolf, I mean, along those lines, I want to bring up the, it's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. It was passed in 2005 uh, under the Bush administration, of course, pushed by the NRA, approved pretty overwhelmingly in the Senate by a vote of 65 to 31 in the House of Representatives, also basically a two-thirds vote, 283 in favor, 144 opposed. And this provides that kind of blanket immunity that you're talking about. I mean, there was there is essentially a trend gathering pace uh, at the municipal level where gun sellers and gun manufacturing corporations were having lawsuits filed against them. And so they the arms industry lobbyists got their loyal friends in Congress to pass this law, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act shielding them from any type of legal accountability. I mean, you essentially cannot sue gun manufacturers. There's there's a few loopholes that are very, very narrow. Uh, effectively, this is blanket immunity. I mean, like you were saying, there's no other industry that gets this type of special legal status. Everybody has to understand, it's not about senators or representatives being politically aligned with the NRA or believing in whatever the propaganda is that they put out. I've talked to enough senators and representatives over the years, and they've been very, I mean, in private, not in public, but they've been very clear. It is politically dangerous to oppose uh, the NRA. You are immediately targeted. Your political enemies get the money. They get the publicity of being friendly, all kinds of political shenanigans typically follow, organized or not, who knows, but it's the understanding of most politicians in this country that you do not want the gun people and the NRA as your political enemy. So you say a few words to soothe 
those that are against the guns in your district, but you basically go along, you find the excuses you need, and that's because it's less dangerous for you to go along with them than it is to oppose them, which means that the only way this is ever going to be changed is if there is the kind of groundswell from below. But lest people get depressed by that, don't be. If you ever read the novels that were once very popular of the American writer Upton Sinclair, you will know that he is one of those who documented how nothing was done by politicians for the rotten meat and the rotten food and the adulterated food and the food that, that didn't tell you what was honestly what was in it and so on. All of that kept going. The politicians were bought off, very similar to the story with guns, until people got, if you pardon my double entendre, fed up with all of this. And there was a massive movement from below, and that became too dangerous for the politicians to ignore. The equation had changed. Now it was, if you didn't come down hard on this need for a, a Food and Drug Administration that makes sure what we eat doesn't kill us, then you would be seen as an enemy by enough voters that all the money of the meat producers could not offset it. That is the only way something like that that could change this absent more basic changes in the country. We're going to have to leave it right there. That was the voice of Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.